Designs for Health is proud to present Understanding Epigenetics and Methylation, an online webinar with Zelda Graham on Tuesday the 21st of May 2024 at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. She'll be covering how to understand the steps of methylation, how to identify and manage patients with under and over methylation issues, what tests are useful to qualify patient symptom presentation, and how to set effective treatment goals with these patients. For more information and to register, please visit the designsforhealth.com.au website. By Designs, and I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us today is Stephen Judge, a naturopath practising in Surrey Hills, and today we'll be speaking about the link between oestrogen and histamine. Welcome to Wellness by Designs. How are you, Stephen? Good, thanks, Andrew. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Um, but first of all, can I ask you a little bit, just take us through a little bit of your story, please. Yeah, sure thing. So I ended up in the naturopathic profession just kind of by accident, really. I had zero background in wellness. I did not come from that world. I was not interested in health at all um, until I started to develop quite a lot of health issues with my gut and my mental health. And, you know, I was pretty young, like in my early, like late teens, early 20s. And, you know, I guess I just kind of visited, you know, the conventional medical system for help. And um, despite me having zero knowledge about health or natural medicine or anything, just what was offered to me, you know, I just intuitively felt like there's got to be more on offer than that. Um, and then I did kind of go on a bit of a health journey. I wanted to just get fit and healthy and, you know, I was my body was a wreck. You know, I was a musician in a previous life and um, it's very kind of rock and roll lifestyle. Um, but I got into fitness and that kind of naturally sparked my interest in nutrition very specifically. I was just fascinated by nutritional science. Um, so that's I literally just Googled um, nutrition course and you know, the Australasian College of Natural Therapies popped up and I applied and went along. You know, I couldn't have told you what a naturopath was. Um, but, you know, throughout my studies in naturopathic nutrition, I, I got the bug. I was just so fascinated with what I was learning about. And I was shocked that what I was learning at college about natural medicine and integrative medicine and kind of root cause, you know, medicine, I was just kind of shocked that, I'd never heard of it and it wasn't as mainstream as I thought it should be based on um, how um, effective it was. Um, yeah, and so then I just kind of caught the bug and um, ended up, yeah, getting into private practice. I love working with people now one-on-one. -on -one. It's definitely my thing. You're one of this group of searchers and, and they're the smaller group from my observations, um, those mm. people that actively search out answers. Um, like, for instance, I fell into nursing um, 
you know, mm. I didn't have the marks to do physio, basically. Um, so, yeah. so there was this sort of um, passive approach in my story. And I've found that most people or many people who enter natural medicine enter it from this, um, the medical model failed them or uh, they, they had health issues themselves and they were accidentally introduced to natural medicines. But you actively sought it out for health reasons. You'd never, you didn't have a knowledge of natural medicine prior to that. That to me is really interesting. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. It was all very intuitive and I would like had zero interest in like, oh, this is going to be my career. Like it was none of that. I just was following this intuitive whim of wanting to understand, um, yeah, which is very cool, you know, thinking back. And that's really interesting also that you you speak about intuition. It's interesting how we're led to certain things. Um, can I ask you, though, we, get, we I want to delve straight into the topic because it's a big topic and some, I suspect that this isn't going to be covered all in one podcast. But anyway, so what are we talking about when we're talking about the link between oestrogen and histamine? Can you take us a little bit about through how your patients present to you? Yes. So, you know, I've always been interested in gut and mental health, kind of what I like to work with in clinic. So it caught my attention when I learned that histamine is not only a neurotransmitter, but also a source of like a food intolerance as well. So there were issues with histamine internally and uh, histamine coming into us externally as well. Um, so, and I didn't learn much about this at university. So when I discovered this, you know, I was meeting a lot of clients, men and women, but predominantly women who, despite kind of having a good diet and, you know, some of them, you know, a good lifestyle on paper, they were doing all the right things, let's say, uh, particularly with their diet, you know. Um, despite that, they were presenting with like a broad range of symptoms, which didn't make sense to me. So you know, in the context of estrogen and histamine, and we'll get into how they're connected, um, you know, these women presenting with dysmenorrhea, menorrhagia, a lot of, um, you know, premenstrual symptoms like clockwork every month, like premenstrual migraines and headaches and bloating and fluid retention um, and anxiety. And I, I can't remember how, but I finally at some point stumbled onto this link between symptoms of, relative estrogen excess and how a core driver of those uh, is histamine, excess histamine or histamine intolerance. Um, so, you know, while we, we know histamine is very commonly associated with being a mediator of allergic reactions, um, it actually plays many other roles and, you know, it is involved with ovulation and female reproduction. So you know, essentially there is this two-way process occurring between estrogen and histamine of the body. They liberate and reinforce each other. So they have the potential to increase the levels of each other respectively in this vicious cycle if things get out of hand. So, you know, what does estrogen have to do with histamine? Well, there are estrogen receptors on mast cells so, you know, when estrogen binds to those mast cells, histamine is released. Um, but not only does estrogen stimulate histamine release, at the same time it down-regulates the enzyme 
but the Dow enzyme or diamine oxidase, which is responsible for getting it out of the body. So estrogen increases secretion of histamine, but it also reduces the ability of the body to get it out. So it's kind of the link there. Um, and histamine itself stimulates the ovaries to produce more estrogen. So you can end up in this vicious cycle where there, um, you know, there's high estrogen causing high histamine and that's causing high estrogen and this perpetual liberation continues. So because, uh, because of that connection, it's very likely why women appear to be more susceptible to histamine intolerance, or maybe people are, are just not looking for it in men, but clinically I mostly see it in women due to those hormonal sensitivities and fluctuations throughout the menstrual cycle because a good clue when, uh, you know, histamine intolerance might be at play is that when those symptoms of relative estrogen excess are present, they, in kind of textbook cases, uh, these occur in women just before ovulation and in that premenstrual phase of the menstrual cycle because it's at these times of the cycle when estrogen levels are higher relative to progesterone. Okay. Um, I want to continue on there because you said a few things that interest me and I really need to learn more about this. But just firstly, you say, you know, mostly women, but also it does present sometimes in men. Would you see these men as being in a more um, age, a, a higher age bracket? So the sort of, you know, mid-50s, if you like, age bracket of men, or do they indeed present earlier in men? They do present earlier, I've found. Like young men in their 20s to 30s, in my clinical experience, they're typically coming in with like chronic reflux like unresolving, oh, okay. pretty intense, daily heartburn, gorge uh, presentation and nausea and a lot of those gut kind of centric presentations, um, usually a bit of anxiety in there as well. But, yeah, no, I do see quite a wide spectrum of ages. Gotcha. Particularly so gotcha. many people have gut issues these days, you know. I, I may as well sort of cover that topic now, Um because it's in front of us before we go back to women. And that is this picture of reflux, particularly as you say in men, um, you've obviously got to go through when you've, when you're doing a patient intake, you'd have to go through your um, uh, responsible differential diagnoses there of, you know, potential ulcers, potential helicobacter pylori infection, um, pyloric stenosis. I know that's normally seen in infants, but um, even weird things that might've been picked up like, you know, um, esophageal, what, forgive me, eosinophilic esophagitis. I know that again is like mainly presents in childhood, but do, do you have this sort of intake form which teases apart the possible gastrointestinal or other gastrointestinal causes of um, reflux that may not be due to histamine before going, ah, therefore it's histamine? Yeah, I do. Like, that's a good point you're making, this whole, like, uh, histamine intolerance label, because it is really a symptom of a deeper issue. Like, it's not a condition itself. Um, yeah, I do have a pretty comprehensive intake form, um, which can, you know, I can get a bit of a picture and before I see these people think, oh, you know, they're looking a bit histamine-y. Um, I guess... Yeah, it's important to realise that the histamine and trans label, it is really kind of like a diagnosis of exclusion. 
I would right. say. Because people are presenting, gotcha. like you said, with histamine symptoms, like, okay, well, could they could have helicobacter pylori. They might have a true allergy. Um, you know, they might have EOE. Like, it is really kind of, you got to kind of exclude all that other stuff. Um, I guess what is kind of convenient um, in my experience working with people is, I don't know, 80 to 90% of people who've present with this histamine intolerant picture, they've had every investigation under the sun before they've seen oh, it. Right. Because the histamine intolerance thing is just not looked at in mm. conventional medicine. Mm. They've been to the immunologist, they've been to the gastro, they've been to the rheumatologist, they've been to the endocrinologist, and, like, no one's kind of clocked this phenomenon, which is kind of why I got into it as well. It's like, why isn't anyone looking at this? It's really interesting. Um, gotcha. But, yes, like, in my experience, most people have ruled that all out. Right. Or they did have it and they've treated it, but there's, you know, something's still up. Yeah. Right. Um, we'll talk about Theo, Professor Theo, Theo Herides a little bit later when we talk a little bit further, but um, talking about mast yeah, cell but... activation. But just getting back to women with this, so in yeah. the past, you know, we've had these quite controversial labels, if you like, or topics of firstly there was estrogen dominance, then there was estrogen excess. Now we're talking mm. about really estrogen sensitivity, is that right? Or can you actually see an excess of estrogen throughout the the women's period, woman's period? Like what are we talking about here? Yeah, I guess I do um, tend to look at it as like a relative estrogen excess, personally. Like I've dropped the kind of dominance term, but just relative to uh, progesterone estrogen being in higher quantities. Um, and I guess I, you know, in the context of, um, you know, the whole histamine intolerance issue, um, it's a nice concept to explain to patients and keep it simple because progesterone um, there are progesterone receptors on mast cells as well. You know? So progesterone inhibits the release of histamine. It stabilizes mast cells um, and upregulates Dow enzyme as well. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I frame it and look at it. And, you know, we, right, we, okay. you know, we can get into deeper testing with people, like with all the metabolites and looking at phase one and two metabolites and all that to really confirm it. Um, but to be honest, you know, I guess there's such a huge focus on the gut with all this that I really have to go there with people. We can get enough info from symptom picture and floods and kind of gut testing, really. Yeah. And you mentioned the medical model previously, and obviously, you know, a, a medical viewpoint of this would just be, oh, well, you, there's histamine, just give an antihistamine. There you go, problem solved. Not quite so yeah. easy. No, I wish it was. Um, no, unfortunately not. The histamine intolerance situation is like a great example of the difference between a conventional and a naturopathic functional integrative approach. So, yeah, conventional medicine is going to go, cool, too much histamine, here's an antihistamine. Um, whereas, you know, obviously our approach is really all about asking about the why. So why is this person histamine intolerant? why are they expressing symptoms of, you know, uh, relative estrogen excess and what is the connection between histamine and estrogen and what do we need to do to, you know, resolve these symptoms entirely, which can be done. Um, and, you know, it is tricky because the clinical presentation is not only complex, but there's a variability 
with the signs and symptoms people might experience, right? I was kind of touching on that before. One person may present, one, you know, a woman with classic relative estrogen excess symptoms, the painful heavy periods, the PMS, the premenstrual migraines, whereas someone else, male or female, may might not have those symptoms, but they might have chronic reflux and nausea and anxiety. This is because, like, with this one molecule, histamine, there's four different kinds of receptors and eight different organ systems that it has an influence on. So it can have this um, staggering level of effects on the body. And so, you know, I get asked a lot, well, where do you start? Like, um, you know, how do you help these people? So I guess regardless of how it is presenting symptom-wise, um, you know, and I guess let's bring the folks back to histamine and estrogen, but a core premise of resolving any type of presentation of histamine intolerance and understanding the why it really comes down to a core philosophy of naturopathic treatment, which is optimal detoxification. It really comes down to that, you know, and I guess I do in clinic, I like to frame it to patients you know, histamine and estrogen, like they get a bad rap, right? <laughs> like in general for being the cause of a lot of, you know, um, issues. But, you know, the issue isn't estrogen or histamine, like inherently. The problem is like they have jobs to do, which are very important. Um, the issue is the way it's not handling it properly and we're not getting it out. Um, right. I just like to frame it that way because we, I get a lot of, like it comes down to perspective and, with patients, how they're viewing what's happening with in their body, because they can get kind of stuck with the mindset of, oh, you know, my hormones and all oh, my histamine are kind of, you know, um, you know, intentionally that, you know, like they have no control over the situation, but it's not true. That's just, there are deeper issues going on and these things are building up and they're not getting out. And if we can do that, like we're meant to, we can restore balance, you know. That being the case, though, if, you, if you're concentrating on detoxification, I mean, that's an old yeah. pillar of therapy, if you like, for natural therapies. So we're talking about digestion, yeah. elimination, um, excretion, yeah. all of these sorts of things. Do you concentrate at all on the Dow enzyme and supporting, like, for instance, SNPs within that enzyme, or do you act generally with regards to, you know, helping the gut, um, helping people with their digestion and elimination? There is a major focus for me on the gut and this Dow enzyme component. Um, yeah, because basically, you know, like I said, it's a symptom of a deeper issue. There's poor detoxification. Mm. There's two main channels to get histamine out. Um, the first is like this endogenous histamine we create ourselves, which is, um, you know, uh, via the HNMT enzyme, which degrades histamine via SAMe. So, you know, endogenous histamine uh, detoxification is really like we need to look at methylation function, okay? Um, but then we have the exogenous histamine coming in from outside the body, and that is detoxified via the Dow enzyme, which is found in... Uh, many different organs, but predominantly the gut. It's very highly concentrated in the epithelial lining of the gut. Um, and, you know, Dow enzyme production can be directly affected essentially by gut dysbiosis, 
small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and intestinal hyperpermeability. So, you know, I, the genes are interesting. I don't have a huge focus on them, you know. I guess because, you know, another question I get asked is, well, how can we test for histamine intolerance? It's like there are many tests you can look at to kind of confirm, like, why someone has been so susceptible to this. So someone may have the genetic SNPs, for example, but that doesn't mean they're going to be, you know, riddled with histamine intolerance for the rest of their life. Like we know, it's really about everything around the SNP and the environment. So in this yeah. uh, context, the environment and the environmental piece of the puzzle here that's really important is the state of the gut and is there a dysbiotic um, situation? Because gut back, a dysbiotic gut, certain bacterial species in that situation produce more histamine. Um, so yeah, there is a huge focus on the gut. It's pretty rare, like, you know, the central nervous system histamine production and the uh, mental health presentation of too much histamine. It is technically like a separate phenomenon to, um, you know, histamine issues with the gut and the Dow enzyme, but it's pretty rare that these things are happening in isolation. Um, but gotcha. yeah, the massive focus on the gut. It's really because if we're, when people ask me where the hell do you start here, um, you know, what's that? That's my next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have to. Okay, well, let, let, let's address that then. Like, like when we're talking about particulars, obviously we can't talk brand names, but what sort of ingredients yes. do you find of merit? Where do you start? Do you start at, you know, just simple eating and chewing habits? stress at meal times, that sort of thing? Or do you go more heavy handed and get them onto like detox protein supplements, things like that? My approach um, with these people um, is it's not heavy handed, but I do like to get testing underway straight away. Um, right. I said to people, look, there's all these tests you could do and your hormones are out of balance, whatever, but like, First, can we just get some proper blood work done, um, you know, and then while you go away and follow a low histamine diet for me for two to four weeks, we'll go get some microbiome, you know, genetic analysis done so we can treat the root cause of this properly. Um, yeah, so I know there's a bit of this hang-ups in the, you know, naturopathic functional community about, well, the low histamine diet isn't a solution and it's, you know, that's just symptom relief and it's not, it's like, I get that, but these people, the people I see anyway, um, are pretty sick. I'm talking like, you know, three migraines a week and chronic reflux and it's I'm like, so that intervention, like following a low histamine diet to begin with for these people is very effective. Like they come back, similar with the FODMAP, you know, people come back and go, whoa, like, you know, I'm 90% better. And it's like, cool, that is really how to figure out if someone's histamine intolerant. Okay, just follow the diet and see how you feel. It should be pretty obvious so, in a few so, weeks. So a low salicylate diet followed for a, a few weeks and you basically get at least <clears throat> some sort of con confirmation of there's an issue here, um, at yes. least with exogenous salicylates. Then you've got yes. to think about elimination then. So, you know, what do you employ there? Or do we talking about general, you know, bile flow and, and f high fibres to prevent enterohepatic recirculation of mainly um, hormones but, but other things as well? What do you employ there? 
Yeah, I personally, I start very low and slow with these people. They're very sensitive. So while we're getting to do like a low histamine diet um, and we're waiting on testing, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm pretty much just getting some nutrients into them to help with bowel movement regulation and liver support, like some pretty basic things, magnesium, zinc, some activated B vitamins if I think they will tolerate it. Certain people, depending on their presentation, I won't go there. Um, and just some very gentle pre-probiotic um, treatments just to start that process of starting to restore the environment and get their bowels moving properly. A lot of these people have their bowel movements are very irregular. Um, but it's pretty gentle, my approach. But then once we get um, microbiome and or SIBO results back then, you know, hopefully after a month or two of building them up and getting some relief and, you know, addressing some nutrient deficiencies on blood tests, if that's relevant, then we will get into a bit more, uh, I want to say hardcore, like stronger treatment, like really treating the dysbiosis or bacterial overgrowths or pathogens if they're there. Um, and that process can take a while, you know, at least two to three months, that first stage of dealing with dysbiosis and SIBO. And, um, but yeah, it's very low and slow for me to begin with, and I'm just trying to build these people up because um, they've got, you know, pretty intense degrees of malabsorption and so they're really tired. And, you know, so I'm just trying to get the gut and the liver moving very gently but also just start the process of restoring their nervous system, actually. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, you really mentioned, important. Sammy, previously, you've also mentioned methylation. Um, I've spoken mm. with Carolyn Ladowski about this. I, 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 am, I am turning. That came out wrong. Um, um, but I was one of these old school people that just, you know, pushed through with folic acid and it'll work. I'm now of the mind that mm. this important work that Carolyn Ladowski is doing about unmetabolized folic acid is that contributing to the histamine picture or the histamine sensitivity picture? And is that one of the reasons you used activated B vitamins, including the methylfolate? And, you know, like, can you take us through SAMe and what effect it has, that sort of stuff? Yeah, the, um, the unmetabolized folic acid issue, issue could, um, yeah, definitely be involved with it. Um, you know, because like we are saying before, the, um, yeah, methylation is a key process for the detoxification of um, intracellular histamine. Um, what was the second part of that question you asked? Sammy. Ah, Sammy. Yeah, look, um, the, yes, the unmetabolized folic acid will definitely be contributing to this in a lot of people, particularly if they have, are presenting with central nervous system presentations of, you know, excessive histamine. Sammy, oh, like I rarely prescribe it, to be honest. Maybe right, gotcha. Well, at the beginning of treatment, like even, even the activated bees, some people, like it really depends on how they're presenting to me. Like, you know, if they are um severely anxious and have multiple chemical sensitivities and more complex presentations like MCAS, Sears, but I'm I'm not putting them on anything methylation, any kind of methylated nutrient or definitely not SAMI. It's just 
it I have before when I you know I got a bit excited when I discovered all this and you know it really just ramped up these pathways way too quickly and people typically have side effects. Um, I will, based on blood tests, put people on B12 definitely so it kind of bypasses the yeah. gut and having to deal with that. Yeah. Um, get that process started of kind of um, you know trying to improve methylation status. Um, but that's about it. Otherwise, I'm really just looking at, you know, the building blocks of trying to get their methylation cycle um, working gently, say the zinc and the B12 and the mag and maybe an activated B supplement along the way if I think they can handle that. Gotcha. What about what about things like amino acids to help um, support the detoxification process. So things like, for instance, somebody who's really sensitive glycine. Do you ever use that, or do you ever I use, do use um, glutathione? Or? I do use glycine quite a lot. Um, liposomal um, glutathione I have used in many cases with this estrogen histamine presentation, um, alongside. Um, you know, what's a calcium deglucurate? It's not, sorry, yeah. not technically an amino acid. Um, but just to kind of start liberating these detoxification pathways, yeah, glutathione I will use with a lot of people and glycine. I'm kind of using glycine more because no one's sleeping. Like it's quite an effective treatment for that, but with the liver detoxification yes. pathway um, for sure. Um, but the Calcium deglucurate um, is pretty useful in these situations um, because we know that glucuronidation is a really important phase two liver detoxification pathway for detoxifying estrogen, um, amongst other things. Um, and what can happen with uh, these excess estrogen histamine uh, presentations is once um, the liver you know, deposits, um, you know, let's say estrogen into the lumen after going through phase two glucuronidation, um, it should be removed from the body by the valve, uh, via the bowels. But glucuronidation can get reversed by an enzyme in the gut called beta-glucuronidase, um, which I really like to see on microbiome testing as part of this treatment um, because beta-glucuronidase it's basically an enzyme produced by bacteria in the gut and in large quantities, it allows for the recirculation of estrogen. In, so it kind of undoes what phase one and two liver detoxification just tried to achieve. So, so with regards to using uh, calcium deglucurate in aiding glucuronidase, sorry, in aiding yeah. glucuronidation and then having it undone by bacteria that secrete glucuronidase, do you therefore have to focus first equally, whatever, at the same time um, by using certain probiotics or prebiotics that help favour those bugs that don't produce glucuronidase or at least uh, might help to push them out if you like or, or um, hamper their production yeah yeah it's a good point because um calcium deglucurate you know it inhibits um you know it, it inhibits the 
um, activity of the enzyme, but it doesn't actually lower it, you know. So I love seeing beta glucuronidase because I can, on a microbiome test, can say to people, look, this is a definite link with you not getting rid of estrogen properly. Take this, it'll help you do that. But this is also a symptom of a deeper issue, the high beta glucuronidase. It is a symptom of dysbiosis patterns. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's why at the beginning of treatment I am getting some very gentle pre-probiotics, maybe not a very kind of SIBO-looking person, probiotics. Um, but I am definitely looking at, like, dysbiosis patterns on microbiome testing and looking to balance out certain commensal bacteria because the beta-glucronidase is interesting, interestingly produced by um, certain bacteria, so like E. coli, certain clostridium species. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, and so what about herbs? And um, forgive me, other nutrients. So we're talking about, you know, the bile triad, the production of bile, when we're talking about decreasing the cholesterol, increasing the bile acids, increasing the lecithin, I think it is, with choline. Do, do you employ things like choline and taurine and, um, you know, vitamin E? We're now favouring the tocotrienols over the tocopherols. Do you ever employ those in your things or do you use herbs which might help the bile flow? Yeah, look, I do use herbs um, for bile flow and, like, collagog, choleratic herbs. These days I'm cautious doing that at the very beginning until I've got testing results just because of the whole, and if people have SIBO and there's bile de deconjugation and, or there's, um, you know, one of the sulfate reducing bacteria in the gut test, I will use those as long as there's nothing going on there. Um, so I will use right. those, but I'll wait. Um, first up, some things I may use, um, yeah, like I was saying before, glutathione, I will look at like broccoli sprout as well, which is pretty gentle um they're the main ones vitamin e yes i um i'm actually i'm prescribing vitamin e a lot more nowadays kind of um very overlooked in its anti-inflam action and um regular helping to regulate like zinc copper balance in the body um and stuff yeah. like that that, that's a whole story in itself the whole vitamin e thing isn't it we've gone from uh vitamin e and then then there was an issue about using synthetic vitamin E and favouring the alpha tocopherol. Then it was the gamma tocopherol. Now it's the tocotrienols, which we're seeing yeah. come out in the research as having particularly issues um, or advantages over metabolic issues. I yeah. wait with bated breath to see if it, if it um, further research shows anti-inflammatory actions. That will be very interesting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I also use, um, there's a very gentle um, and very cost-effective intervention is glucomannan um, uh -huh. to start helping with the um, clearance of um, estrogen and of bilirubin. Um, you know, there's a really interesting um, paper in the British of Journal of Nutrition that showed um you know, glucomannan significantly decreased fecal beta-glucuronidase activity. Um, so that was a neat little study that Rachel Arthur got me onto. Um, so, yeah, glucomannan is also quite nice. It's a very gentle kind of prebiotic. It, it helps increase bifidobacterium and, um, yeah, some quite nice actions in the gut as well. So I do like to – I'm bringing that in a lot more 
people these days. Excellent. And so, you know, obviously many of these women particularly are on concurrent medications, not the least of which yeah. would be the oral contraceptive pill. How do you yeah. work around, say, potential medical interactions? Or even, can I say, you know, uh, you've got chronic reflux, so they're put on to just a PPI, which is going to worsen the whole digestive detoxification issue, but it relieves the yeah. symptom very well. Yes. Great medication. Um, <laughs> the yeah. perfect medicine is one that relieves the symptoms while furthering the... Sorry, yeah. sorry. I was going to say, you know, doesn't the insert say these meds are meant to be prescribed for two weeks or something? PPI? Yeah. Or over the yeah, six weeks was the original. Wow. I mean, I So how do you work around medical interactions, medicine interactions? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, there are there are actually so many medications that either inhibit Dow enzyme or directly stimulate histamine release. So I do, because I work with mental health a lot, I do see a lot of people on it on psychiatric meds. Mm. Um, and there's a huge list of psychiatric meds which influence histamine, like antipsychotics, SSRIs, SNRIs, like a lot of them do. And some of them also kind of can cause low histamine issues, actually, depending on the drug. Um, but, you know, in the context of, say, I guess because I see a lot of people on psychiatric medications and their kind of long-term goal is to get off those, um, you know, I'm never suggesting... I'm kind of encouraging people to, let, like, let's prepare you for that journey. Like, there's a lot of... Again, I say, look, we just need to make sure um, your detoxification capacity for histamine is as optimal as possible before you even go there. And obviously, as well as addressing all the aspects of their life that could be contributing to dysbiosis and poor histamine load and whatever, like diet and um, their environment, if they're surrounded by mold, like you've got to look at all this stuff. Um, but yeah, there's other meds like, you know, NSAIDs affect histamine release yeah. and... Um, other analgesics and metformin and antihypertensives. It's it's a huge, huge list. I guess I just keep it simple with people. I just say, look, like I I want whatever med you're on. Let's just prepare you to come off um, when you want to do that. But give it some time. Like we really need to make sure your the, all the environmental factors have been looked at and addressed for what's relevant for you. Um, we will look at the gut, we will sort out that gut and look at the diet, at lifestyle things that are associated with improving that. And if it's relevant, like with the hormonal factor with estrogen, we'll, we'll make sure um, your detoxification capacity for that is improved, like, and ready to handle coming off. And especially with the oral contraceptive pill, that's a big one. Um, you know, that especially if there is a synthetic um, estrogen. Um, you know, that can be a big driver of certain symptoms, like histamine presenting yeah. symptoms for women. But again, I'm saying give it two to three months before coming off that. I have to ask, how do you handle, from a medical legal point of view, um, bringing these patients off what can be quite, you know, chunky medications, quite hard-hitting medications, antipsychotics and other medications that can have an impact either quickly, severely, and not just for their own health, but potentially the health of others. How do you work that one? That's a fine line. Yeah, it is. No, just to clarify, I'm, I'm 
you know, when I meet these people, it's, it's interesting, actually, I'm, a lot of clients coming through are kind of telling me they're about to do this without, and they haven't told their psychiatrist on the GP. <laughs> so I'm kind of going, hold on a sec, like, we need to prepare you for this, but I need you to tell your specialist or GP that you are considering this for yourself and you need to do this and it has to be monitored by them very closely, especially psychiatric medication, okay? And, um, yeah, it's fun, you know, I think some people are just in a really desperate situation and are like, stuff this, I'm coming off that and that's why I'm here to see you. And I'm kind of going, hold on, like, we need to prepare you for this and it could take at least two to three months before I would even suggest under the guidance of your physician beginning that process. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I, I actually wonder, this is such a big topic when you really look into it. There's You lift the lid off, you think, oh, yeah, it's just going to be one thing. There's a whole quagmire of other issues beneath this. But one of them <laughs> might be, is this part of the reason why uh you know, there's only a 50% chance of an antidepressant working in any patient, of the first antidepressant attempted. Um, Could this be at least part of the answer? I mean, I I have no answers, just a question. But, um, Stephen, where can we find out more? Do you have any, um, you know, patient references, practitioner references? Do you mentor people on this? Yeah, look, I've, I have like a blog or two on my website. I wish I had something more comprehensive. It's in the works. It's been so busy. Um, but a few people have beat me to the punch. Um, Joanne Kennedy, who you would know, has a pretty awesome resource for histamine intolerance, yes. like methylation yes. guru woman. Um, she has some amazing stuff, as does Rachel Arthur, a bit more yep. practitioner-centric, that kind of info she's got, yes. like more nerd Thank on you. histamine. Um, and, you know, for the layperson and, like, you know, patients, and Lara Bryden has some very cool resources on this, very to the point and practical. And, um, yeah, if people want to go more, I definitely head the way of those practitioners. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning of our podcast, Professor Theo, Theo Harides, and, yes, yes. that's a name. And, um, and he, up on YouTube he's got a couple of, very instructive videos which are largely targeted at neurodevelopmental disorders. But it's so interesting, his methodical way of saying, well, okay, we, we, had, we, we think we might just jump to this, but no, we have to do this first to confirm that we have that. He, he was enlightening to me um, and quite instructive. But, um, I, like, I just thank you for taking us through what is obviously such a quagmire you've obviously got some experience in caring for people with this and helping them navigate these avenues so thank you so much for joining us today on wellness by design Stephen judge yeah pleasure thanks andrew this is wellness by designs i'm andrew whitfield cook and remember that you can catch up on all of the other show notes and the other podcasts on the designs for health website thanks for joining us today 